Welcome to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World with your host, Anya Cates. This podcast has one mission, to rally a generation that's been labeled and groomed as lazy, triggered, and entitled, and invite us all to write a new story. One of a generation that's willing to challenge the status quo, reject black and white thinking, and opt out of each and every repressive system and box that we've been placed in. Above all else, I want to invite millennials to step up to the plate, to be vulnerable in owning our responsibility to ourselves and for walking this planet through the darkest of days. It's time to dream new dreams, write new stories, and create new futures. The great work begins. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the show. I think the next time you all listen to an episode, this show will have a new intro, which I am really excited about. Um, I feel like the podcast is growing up. (laughs) It's nice to sort of uh, see this little project of mine take on new iterations and stages of its evolution finally getting my website together. You know, I have to say, maybe it's just because I'm in one place and have the capacity to, the capacity and the time to get things done more so than I have before, but I also just feel super creatively inspired, um, more so than before. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like a lot of us are in that boat. I feel like Sure, with more time, with nothing better to do, um, we would create things, but there's something I feel like to be said for the fact that what we're creating right now is probably, sure, part desperation. Um, Maybe there's some monetary incentive in it. We don't have jobs. What else can we do to make money? Um, But At the same time, there's something to be said about the lack of, like, producing for the man right now. The man being, I don't know, all of the the government and structure and systems that surround us that at the moment, at least to me, feel pretty absent and fucked up and untrustworthy. Not as if they weren't any of those things before, but particularly now they are showing their true colors. Um... And I think it's probably safe to say that we're all thinking of a world in which those structures and systems were, if not totally absent, less prominent in our lives. But I feel very inspired and I feel very creative. And um, I'm sure that on one level, again, that for some people, especially at the beginning of all of this, that it was like, oh, fuck, everyone's jobs or gigs are canceled. So now we all have to compete online. Um, But I think that's a really oversimplified, narrow minded um, viewpoint on all of this. I maybe I'm being naively optimistic, but I just feel extremely inspired myself and inspired by what I see everyone else doing. It's like, finally everyone is like well I have this time on my hands and what do I actually enjoy doing 
what is it that I'm doing? Not because someone tells me it's what I'm supposed to be doing or because what some system expects me to be doing, but what do I feel authentically and innately the desire to do? It's almost more of a need than it is a want. You know, when we have everything else stripped, it's like, I think us as humans, you know, need to be doing something. And I don't necessarily mean like endless content creation and output and some version of um, valuing like capitalistic output. But I do think humans are genuinely creative. So without the pressure to create, how and what might we create? So first of all, I feel (laughs) inspired to do a bunch of shit, update this podcast in ways I haven't before, update my Patreon, which I mentioned last week. For a year or so, I had... This is a perfect example, actually. I had set up a Patreon. Um, Patreon, for those of you that don't know, it's a website where you can go on and support, you know, creators and artists that you appreciate and whose work you enjoy. So musicians or podcasters or artists. And um, for a little bit of money a month, you can basically be a patron. So because it's very difficult to make money in any sort of a creative field in this day and age, um, or any day and age, really. Um, You can go on and sort of help support the cause along with other people that uh, feel similarly about whomever you are supporting. And I had set up a Patreon page and at first, you know, there's different tiers. So you can donate $5, $10, $25 a month. And initially, I, I don't think I saw really the inherent value of the podcast itself. I thought if people are going to, I'm offering this free service in the form of a podcast, if people are going to send me money, I have to like give them something super valuable in return outside of this podcast. So in addition to all the work that I was putting in on the podcast, I sort of agreed to deliver all of this extra content in the form of like monthly bonus episodes and weekly columns of inspiration. And I'd say for about two months, that was fun. And given the size of my audience, given the size of my Patreon audience as well, I quickly realized that I had bit off way more that I could chew than than I could chew. And even though what I was creating was cool and I was excited about it, I didn't have enough time. I didn't have enough energy. And I just started to resent the entire thing. And I think doing the podcast more and putting more effort into that, I realized I really should just be asking people to support me in that endeavor and in that project and not necessarily feel the need to deliver all this extra stuff because the podcast in and of itself is first of all what I want to put the most time and energy into and the thing that has the most eyes on it and if I'm doing all this other stuff then just the whole thing in and of itself both the podcast and the perks I'm offering on Patreon like the whole thing just didn't feel good and I set out to create this project this project being the podcast as something that did feel really good so being a recovering overperformer and perfectionist, um, I decided that I wanted this podcast to really just come from an intuitive, authentic place, that I wasn't doing it for anyone. I didn't do it because I wanted to make a living off of doing it because I knew that would put pressure on me in ways that didn't feel authentic. 
I just really wanted it to be an authentic source of creation for me. And the Patreon page, I realized, quickly became something other than that. And so it felt really icky, and I just avoided it for a while, but I always felt bad because people were still giving money, giving me money, and I hoped that, you know, the reason they were still giving me money is because they felt the podcast in and of itself was value and valuable enough to support. But regard- regardless, it felt like I needed to do something about it, and for whatever reason, I just couldn't fix it or deal with it for like over a year. And then when all of this stuff happened, I felt like all of a sudden what I cared about and what I wanted to be focused on became super clear. And within the first week of quarantine, I dealt with the Patreon and dealt with fixing my website and decided I wanted to update the intro of my podcast and thought of all these other sort of creative projects and ideas that I've been wanting to do that I plan on doing. And I wonder if there is something about the end result or or at least the motivation behind that which we create you know, dependent, depending upon where we feel that pressure coming from, whether it's internally or externally, whether we feel like it's competitive or free of competition. I'm curious whether that sort of end result or that motivation affects the quality of the work and the extent of the work and our desire to do that work. So I wanted to read actually a quote, a tweet that Carsey Blanton, um, who's a wonderful musician, I've played some of her music on this podcast before, she's definitely both a musician and an activist, but she tweeted something the other day that I feel like really summarized this point that I'm trying to make. So I'm just going to read her words because <laughs> she said it better than I could. This crisis is quickly destroying the people are lazy and we need capitalism to incentivize them argument. Healthcare workers are putting in 100-hour weeks all all over the country because they want us to be healthy. Cooks are opening makeshift soup kitchens because they want us to be fed. Artists are creating and releasing work at a rapid clip because they want us to be encouraged. Millions of people are making masks, delivering food, and making donations without knowing when their next paycheck will come. Our incentive has never been money. It has been survival followed closely by generosity. We all want to serve, contribute, and create. Capitalism is not the engine. It's a wrench in the works. People are good. Fucking amen. I, again, maybe overly optimistic, potentially misguided, because I recognize there is a bit of a panic mode setting in right now. But I don't think in that panic mode, people are like going on Craigslist or some sort of job site to try and find another job. They're thinking about what else can I do right now? What else would feel good right now? What else feels authentic right now? You know, I have a friend who's been talking about making hats for, you know, the better part of the last couple of years. And guess what? She's making hats right now. I have another friend who has been playing around with the idea of opening an Etsy shop with different pieces of art that she's created. And right now, what is she doing? She's super inspired by making homemade masks and sewing them and putting them together. 
I have another friend that has been fantasizing about getting rid of all her shit and buying a van and traveling around in her van and writing and playing music. And guess what? She got rid of all her shit, moved out of her apartment and got a van and is now converting it in order to live in it. I see this all over with everybody. And what is our motivation? It's like all of a sudden, all the fog has lifted and we recognize what we really care about and what we want to do. And I'm personally inspired and I'm super fucking inspired about seeing that happen around me and especially with the people that I care the most about there's a panic and a fear but an undeniable clarity and I love that and I also wanted to say which relates to this episode a lot I am first of all very excited to bring you this conversation with my friend Kaj Larson Um, I've been wanting to have him on the podcast for a while, and we actually recorded this probably a month ago now. It might have been longer. It was definitely before all of this pandemic stuff happened, so especially the end of our conversation is really interesting when we start talking about, like, the state of the world and the state of media and the state of politics, um, discussing how we feel like we are reaching a tipping point or uh, as if there's some big break or change that needs to occur. Like, okay, look, here we are. Guess we were right about that. Um, but anyway, regardless of the fact that the conversation happened before all of this started, I think it is extremely relevant to a lot of what I see happening right now. Um, Kaj is like me in his sort of love for and appreciation for complexity and nuance and, The one thing I just really want to say, because I think it's an easy source of distraction right now, is this whole conspiracy piece of this pandemic. And as a disclaimer, I just want to say, like, I'm definitely the type of person that considers all possible options. Hopefully, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know that I rarely settle on anything or see anything in any sort of a black and white context. Um, But I see people that I respect and often agree with feeling as if the need to contradict every single thing that's being exposed in any sort of like mainstream media type of way as conspiracy. Like to me, I feel like we're doing something, although those people feel perhaps as if they are being subversive or being nuanced because they are um, looking into a differing point of view. I think it's very easy to just be very narrow-minded, but on the other side of the spectrum. Um, Charles Eisenstein uh, has a quote which a friend sent me recently about how skeptic and believer are not so different as both are using belief to shelter a wound. So I'm not going to comment on the accuracy of thinking that perhaps this pandemic was caused by 5G or that Bill Gates is trying to enact some sort of global depopulation. I don't really care. Um, I'm that person that, you know, let's say, let's take the vaccination argument for a really low-key, non-inflammatory example. Without a doubt, I think that we could ask 
intelligent questions about ways in which we could both improve on the quality of vaccines and the extent to which we vaccinate, especially infants. Um, I could say the same for the entire medical industrial complex. Clearly, there are intense financial inside job motivations. The lobbying is ridiculous. But that's not to say that I think we don't need the medical industrial complex, or we don't need medicine, or we don't need mainstream medicine. It's also not to say that I don't think we need vaccines. I think it's entirely healthy to question these things. But I don't think that we can demonize these things to the point where just because there are negative aspects of them, or just because the funding is being done by those who stand to benefit from it, we have to be able to step back a little bit and recognize that that doesn't mean those things in and of themselves are bad. Um, and I feel the same way about even the mainstream media, for example. You know, I see a lot of people saying, well, if we don't trust the mainstream media most of the time to tell us what's really happening, why do we trust the mainstream media to tell us what's really happening about coronavirus? And obviously, as the mainstream media always does, of course, there's going to be a lot of over-dramatization around what's going on and fear-mongering. Of course, like, are we not mature consumers of media. Let's just accept that that's the case. But as a mature consumer of media, you have to understand that that also doesn't mean that they're just fucking lying. I mean, unless we're talking about Fox News, but that's a whole other thing. Um, but for real, I mean, Kaj and I talk about this a lot. Kaj is a journalist and um, a great deal of our conversation revolved around how we metabolize and consume media, or really not even just media, any type of information. You know, I, I I talked about this in our conversation, but I often will read articles or books that literally oppose each other, that are like opposite ends of the spectrum, and sometimes like call out the other book in the book that I'm reading <laughs> as wrong. And I do that because, one, I think it's entirely impossible for us to be 100% objective, I don't think any of us are woke enough to recognize um, the ways in which our own experience is affecting our opinions, at least not 100%. I think a lot of us do a lot of work to get there, but I don't think any of us will. Um, but I do that exercise because people on both sides of the argument can make an argument really well and can tell a story really well. And I think it's our responsibility to consume both sides of that. So on the one hand, sure, like read about the conspiracy theories, but don't side on one side or the other. Come up with your own fucking opinion about a thing. And if you're claiming to be, again, subversive or somehow unique or mature or enlightened by considering an alternate viewpoint, make sure you read clearly and consistently the viewpoint that you're opposing because I guarantee that there's something within both of those sides both of those arguments that actually ring true for you authentically and it's definitely a harder life and a harder way to exist when we feel as if the ground under us is constantly moving I talked about this with my dad as well on the episode that we did you know the quote-unquote truth of the reality of a thing is not only impossible to define, I think, but is also constantly shifting. And 
I would encourage everyone to feel more comfortable standing on shifting earth. Like, just accept that the truth and whatever it is that you define as true for yourself or for the world is one, inherently subjective, but also it will change and it will move. And like, find some way to surf on that, you know? Glide from wave to wave. Don't get stuck trying to stand still on something that's moving. You know, that's the whole point. (laughs) I think that's how we grow and I think that's how we learn and I think that's the healthy way to view quote-unquote progress is to recognize that we're zigzagging, we're going up and down and back and around. Just because you thought something was true at one point doesn't mean you're going to think that same thing is true in a year. And that doesn't make you wrong. That doesn't make you, that shouldn't make you feel embarrassed. It should make you feel smart. It should make you feel mature. It should make you feel like whatever life experience you had in that year gave you more information to allow you to change your mind about something. So let's not get, just as I don't want to get distracted by you know, well, everyone's everyone's trying to do all this output right now and we're all competing against each other or, you know, this is just some grand conspiracy and we need to protect ourselves. Like, how are those types of negative views standing in the way of doing what we should really be doing right now, which is all that creative shit that I was talking about earlier? Like, where does the fear-mongering and anger and negativity like how does that serve us and obviously I've said this before that doesn't mean that we don't have a right to be severely afraid or full of grief um, about what's happening but let's use that in a productive way instead of using it as a source of distraction when and if this is all over how would you like to look back and know that you used this time? What is it that you'd really like to discover? What is it that you'd like to create? Just focus on that. Does it even really matter what's on the news? Does it really matter what's happening? You know, this crisis could have manifested in any multitude of ways. The fact is we are where we are now. We have this time and we have this space and let's just reflect on what that means and how that feels. Housekeeping. Like I said, I have finally fixed my Patreon. If you find this podcast valuable and you have a few extra dollars to spare, I know times are really tough. If you feel motivated to support this podcast, I recommend going to patreon.com slash Anya Kotz, A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S. There are still perks available. Um, The one that I am most excited about is that I now have a WhatsApp group chat um, exclusive for those who donate $10 above and above on Patreon, um, where we can all interact with each other and I can send you guys articles and we can talk about episodes. You can ask me questions. Um really inspired by the folks that are in that group already and excited to add more of you. Um, I've also released a couple of playlists. Those are available for uh, those who donate on any level. Um, 
playlists inspired by whatever the fuck is going on right now, which has been another fun creative project. Um, I'll be sharing information about books I've read and articles I've read and um, just sort of interacting with you on Patreon. So yes, the perks are not as elaborate as they were before, but hopefully this podcast is reason enough. Um, If you have a few dollars to spare to donate to, I would really appreciate it. Patreon.com slash Anya If you don't have any money, that is totally fine. I appreciate you listening nonetheless. A free way that you can support the podcast is to subscribe on the iTunes store or leave a review and some stars. Um, I literally had someone reach out to me and say that the reason they considered listening to the episode was because of the reviews that they read. Um, So it does matter in that sense. It also helps the podcast show up uh, more visibly and prominently in search results. Uh, My podcast has a lot of words. Nobody really knows how to spell millennial correctly. Um, And so unless they put all the words in and spell millennial correctly, it often doesn't show up. But the more people that subscribe, um, hit those stars and review the podcast, um, the more it will be easy to find. And so people won't just disregard it because they think it's not on whatever platform that they're checking. So all of that would mean a lot to me. Um, I'm going to play you in with a... Carsey Blanton song called American Kid, which when you hear it, I'm sure you'll understand why I picked it, both in regard to what's going on in the world, but also my conversation with uh, Kaj today. Um, and I just really appreciate her viewpoints. If you haven't listened, um, I did. Uh, she's been on the podcast. I don't know why I didn't mention that in the first place. I have, yes, played her music on the podcast, but she's also been on the podcast. So if you have not heard her on the podcast, it was a really amazing conversation uh, episode 15, Sacred Sexuality, Creativity, and Revolution with Carsey Blanton. I'm sure very applicable to our times now as well. Um, so definitely go check that out. Uh, she's awesome. This song is awesome. Please check out her music and support what she's doing. Um, such an amazing creative and political source of inspiration for me, for sure. So enjoy the song. Enjoy this conversation with Kaj. I definitely did. I cannot wait to have him back on the show to talk more. And I will catch you on the other end. Maybe they know now 
Magnificent Kaj Larson in yeah. your beautiful home, which is a bit like a fishbowl in the Venice Canals, I have to say. I'm sort of into it in like a weird exhibitionist Yeah, kind of, <laughs> <laughs> of course you went right there. It is a little bit of an aquarium, um, but the people watching is amazing. You know, it's touristy here, so... Um, but, you know, I told you I just built that floating book exchange out there, and it's literally one of my favorite pastimes is to, like, sit here when I'm writing or working and watch people kind of enjoy it. Although, the one thing I've learned about the knowledge economy, there are a lot more takers than givers. Yeah. So I'm, like, constantly pimping my friends for books. Right, like, yeah. Hey, you guys got any spare books? Like, <laughs> it's really become annoying, I think. <laughs> That's great, though. Yeah, I like that, because I do feel like I mean, aside from being super isolated, you do have this sort of like, especially with the little library thing, this sort of like community stoking feel going on. Yeah. And look, I'm, I'm lucky, right? Surrounded yeah. by water on two sides. It's very tranquil. You know, I think you guys know, I think, have you met my friend, Dr. Jay Wallace up in Santa Cruz on your travels or anything like that? I haven't, I don't think. He's a friend of uh, Kyle and mine. He's yeah. a friend of Chris's also. And he wrote this book called Blue Mind mm. about how oh, yeah, the yeah. cognitive effects of water on the brain. So it's calming to look out on my little veranda here and, you know, and yeah. it's good for thinking and marinating yeah. in my semi-deep thoughts. Yeah, <laughs> semi-deep. Uh, well, to get into some of those semi-deep thoughts. So you are... I'm going to open this up right away. So you're a Navy SEAL and a journalist, which I think when people would, if, if people would think about those two things, they might find them to be oppositional or in conflict with one another. Yeah, it's a little paradoxical. Mostly yeah. sometimes people think it's not true or they don't mm. understand it, right? Um, my path, I say everybody's path to becoming a frogman or as a SEAL is different. Mine is, is also unique and circuitous. But essentially, when I... Um, I, when I was, you know, 22 years old, uh, I joined the military at 17. I went to the Naval Academy. I was in SEAL training on 9-11. 
um, on September 11th. I was in first phase of SEAL training. I then did uh, almost seven years on active duty. And then I transitioned out of active duty. I went to graduate school. And uh, during that time, the SEAL teams realized a lot of people were getting out and doing different things. There was all these contractors and stuff. So they brought the SEAL reserve units online. And a lot of people aren't even aware that there are SEAL reserve units. So after my active duty time, I took a break in service, and then I joined the reserves. Um, concurrent with that, as I got into graduate school to help offset the cost of graduate school, I started working in journalism. Um, and so, like, I did my summer, I was in Afghanistan, I did Christmas back in Afghanistan, spring break Cambodia, summer in Somalia. I kept doing these documentaries as a war correspondent um, to help pay for graduate school. And so then I kind of launched my civilian career in journalism all while I was still serving as a reserve SEAL. And the funny part about the reserves is the line between reserves and active duties is a little porous. So I'd like jump back and forth across the line, but I had to be really careful to keep this like separation of church and state between my journalism work and my work with Naval Special Warfare. So that's how I became a Navy SEAL journalist, (laughs) Navy SEAL and a journalist. Right. Yeah. I was going to ask if like one um, inspired or provoked the other, or like did your interest in journalism and being a SEAL just sort of run parallel or did like being a SEAL make you feel like, oh, there's so much going on here that I feel like I want to talk about it? Yeah. I always, well, for sure that my SEAL career informs my journalism Mm -hmm. and in large part I have focused and covered on national security issues, issues of war and conflict, um, things like that, military issues. Um, And while I keep my SEAL stuff separate, I didn't even have Navy SEAL on my bio at CNN, Mm. um, like on the webpage or anything. Um, It it definitely, like, both the impetus and my kind of knowledge and understanding comes from my work in in uniform, right? So my, my literally my first report that I did, the first time I was ever on TV, the first time I did anything in television was in Afghanistan, embedded with the U.S. military, talking about the war in Afghanistan. Um, So, uh, you know, distinct from my military work, but certainly, like, that is who I am, and that is the lens, in many ways, through which I see the world. Yeah. Does that ever end up feeling, like, in terms of not including SEAL on your bio for CNN and stuff, does it feel like a necessary separation, or do you sometimes feel like your identity is, like, compartmentalized and... (laughs) both? Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, the right on, question. And it's, it hasn't been static in time. It was, it's been an evolution. In the beginning, I wanted my journalism to stand completely on its own, sort of divorced and independent from my SEAL career. Uh, as I've sort of matured and I have a body of work in journalism, I've been like, you know, won awards and, you know, been nominated for Emmys and like all of that, all of those accolades that come with building a good body of work and that I've done good stuff, I feel like now it's more important to just be like 100% like this is who I am. This is the lens um, and my experience which informs the conclusions that I'm drawing based on what I'm seeing, facts on the ground. So, you know, it's like anything else in life. It's it's evolving as as I change also. But, you know, my current state of affairs is that, um, well the SEAL community is like a whole nother thing because the SEAL community itself has had to go from when I started, which was this kind of unknown, very secretive community to, you know, everybody 
if you talked about special forces, everybody thought Chuck Norris and Delta Force, mm. right? If you're a child of the 80s, you probably did not. Yeah. <laughs> I was born in the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> I was kind of an infant, but yeah. Right. <laughs> right. So, but it used to be that the Army Green Berets were the famous special forces. And then post Bin Laden, post the Captain Phillips mission off the coast of Somalia, SEALs have become very prominent in the media. And so that's kind of also forced me to kind of change my position and be more public about my SEAL background, also commensurate with my my journalism work. So that line is always shifting and changing, and I'm having to kind of navigate it kind of depending on on what's happening or the particular, like, story that I'm covering. But in general, I kind of stay away from SEAL stuff in the media. There's plenty of guys who can do that. Um, My media work is largely focused on... um, you know, um, like issues certainly of like peace and security, war and justice, um, stuff like that. And, you know, tangentially it involves SEAL stuff sometimes. Right. Do you feel like your identity, career, general sort of like uh, views or motivations in life, do you feel like how does that exist within the greater sort of SEAL community? Do you feel like you're an outlier in that sense or... How is the how how do they see what you do? If I'm, I mean, I'm sort of an army of one, which is yeah. why that I'm having to figure it out. There are many seals that have done stuff in media, written books, done movies, stuff like that. That's become a trend line. In fact, like within the special forces community, this is a lot of inside baseball, but <laughs> within <I'm> <laughs> within the special forces community, there's a lot of jokes about like seals with like. You know, the Green Berets are like, oh, where's your hair gel? Where's your book agent? Like Hollywood seals, right? Yeah, yeah. So there is definitely those guys. And that's been more public facing. There are n- no other seals that I know or very few others who have um, engaged in kind of mainstream journalism and have approached it from a lens of journalism the way I have. Most of their, most of those guys have written books about like what it means to be a seal or how like the principles of leadership in the seal teams are going to help you in your business and as an entrepreneur and stuff like that. Um, my thing where I decided to go off and, and be a correspondent and a journalist is I'm kind of an army of one. And so I've had to navigate that, um, both with the command, both with special operations command, um, and also with my own internal values and, and morals, um, about how we do that. So like it, it, uh, these things clash in funny places. Like, you know, uh, I'm, I was in northern Nigeria covering the conflict about, against Boko Haram there. I was able to go there and get there in large part because the mercenaries who were paid to fight this obscure terrorist organization in West Africa were people that I had known from the SEAL teams. There's also, like, lots of stuff that's happening on the like on the classified side in relation to this, which is like in my orbit or whatever. So I have to kind of like push that stuff like out of my mind and not talk about that stuff publicly while still covering this conflict that's happening in the most honest and truthful way. Um, So, yeah. So in some ways, like it's probably terrible to admit, but like I'm making it up as I go along, but I'm trying like like life, but I'm, I'm trying to do it in accordance um, with fidelity to a set of values and principles, which are one mostly 
sunlight is good for democracy and sunlight's a great disinfectant. Um, two, like always be truthful and report as, as much as you can and give people like um, an honest take on what's happening in the world. Um, and then, you know, thirdly, like don't get killed, you know, try not trying to get shot or mortared. That's that's the other principle that I'm very committed to. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Don't die. Like, it's, like, it's an important one. You I see did. this poster I, over I, here? Yeah. yeah. Like, if you keep, obviously, you can't see because it's just us and we're not recording, <laughs> but I have a piece of art that says... The bucket list for seals, and number one is don't die. Yeah. <laughs> and there's only one thing on the list. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's it's interesting, too. I wonder, because I can totally see, like, the necessity in sort of having this polarity and keeping these two things separate. Like, it makes 100% sense. But also, you know, I, I sort of almost liken it to... Like there must be so many things in both camps that you do sort of wish you could talk about within the other, right? Like I imagine there's a lot of experience that you have within the SEAL community that you're like, shit, I'd love to kind of talk about this in a sort of journalistic fashion or like really have an engaged conversation. But I also don't want to, um, you know, I, I don't want to push that. I don't want to push the SEAL community away. I don't want them to think, right? And like, I just think in this world in general, especially right now, so many of us and so many communities are like unwilling or just like we're having a hard time living in this sort of like nuanced space where we can like sit back and listen to each other. Yeah. I mean, my community is struggling with this because we never had to do it in the public sphere before we were this underground, you know, in fact, like part of the mantra and the ethos of the SEAL community is being the quiet professional. That's like really important. It's baked into our consciousness. So anytime you step outside of that fold and speak publicly, you run the risk of stoking the ire of right. the community. So we have to kind of balance that. That being said, I think it's really important for the SEAL community that we do have some of these discussions in public. We've had a series of like high profile negative incidents um, that have been like splashed across the headlines, right? We've had a ton of success. Um, which has made us really popular, right? But we've also had these, um, there's been some deleterious effects of that, which is that there's a big spotlight shown on the SEAL community and, and all of the actions we take and things we do are scrutinized. And we've had a series of sort of discipline incidents and like, um, you know, high profile criminal trials and stuff that also, you know, it's like, it's kind of the old like, you know, with the good comes the bad, right? Like, and here we are in the arena, in the public arena. And my argument is that we can never kind of go back to that era where nobody knows us. And so we have to figure out a, about a way to talk about these like very public issues. Um, you know, we had a guy accused of murder who stood a trial for killing an ISIS fighter. Um, and you know, that is an uncomfortable thing for the SEAL community to talk about in public. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what we're, that's what we're doing now, you know? Um, and, and in addition to that, uh, we've had some, you know, the SEAL community is a very bizarre, strange place. There's no women in the SEAL community. Right. The other even other special operations forces around the world have integrated women. So it's this very one of the last vestiges of all male culture. And so we have to deal with that, like in a new public era. Not that we don't have women who are part of 
SEAL teams, like we have intel officers and we have administrative support and, you know, there are women pilots who are flying close air support overhead for our issues. But as the actual, like, core part of the unit outside of GI Jane, there are no women SEALs. (laughs) Just Debbie Moore. She's the only one, right? (laughs) Um, So we got to figure out how to adjust to that that new world as well as a community. Yeah, it's interesting, like, the, the sort of, like, dealing with and facing these public issues that have, um, that have come to pass. Like it's a very sort of vulnerable position, uh, to put yourself in as a part of, I think what feels like a very masculine culture, right? In silence is just like shut down. We don't have to talk about it. And there is this sort of invitation now to like, I mean, my hope and it's probably not happening is that there's just like a lot of animosity toward, the seals or just fucking masculinity in general, you know, um, which I find really unfortunate. I feel like there's this whole rhetoric around like, Oh, men should shut up and just listen to women. And I, and I, I almost feel like it's the opposite. I feel like I recognize where that comes from and it makes sense. And I don't want to demonize anyone that feels that way. But to me, it feels like giving men the opportunity to actually like talk and express themselves and, Mm you know, speak about confusion or ask questions or just like admit to being wrong. It is, would be so valuable. Have you, have you talked about, uh, the, the like the Matt Damon thing with any of your guests? I have or whatever. No. A couple of years ago, like right at the kind of Zenith apex peak beginning of me too. Um, Matt Damon said something kind of like semi innocuous yeah, on this, air yeah. and he got like, he got crushed, right? Yeah, like, yeah. you don't have a place to speak on this issue. I think it was about <laughs> both of our poorest memories. This is not going to be <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well retold. But, like, the, the basic idea is he said something about Ben Affleck, and, like, he was, like, you know. Uh, and it was, it was, like, by my standards, a pretty innocuous statement. And he really got crushed, partially because, you know, everything was really raw and polarized right then. I'm hoping, like, now, a couple years after you know, the initiation of some of these conversations we can have, I mean, this is why what you're doing is so important, the beginnings of these, um, like, a more nuanced conversation. But my whole thing about, like, you know, whether men have a voice in this debate or whatever, like, and not, like, I think almost 99% of people would say that men have a voice in this debate, but whether, like, they actually mean that or whether it's just lip service rhetoric, like, of course, right? Like, or else we just end up, there's a reason some people, mostly women, feel that men don't have a voice in this debate, right? It's because they're looking at this long tail of history where women's voices have been silenced, right? So now they're like, it's our fucking turn, right? And like, goddamn, that is so legitimate yeah. from a point of view. At the same time, um, I'm not sure that like replacing one fucked up power system with another fucked up power system is really going to get us where we want to be in terms of equality, in terms of like sharing power, like in terms of like shared voices. Like at some point we better get to the conversation part, which like baked into the definition of that is like two people talking to each other. Right. And trying to figure out like where their perspectives diverge and where they align. Right. Yeah, and I I see it as, like, again, I agree. They're looking at it through the lens of this, like, really terrible history, and they're reacting in, I think, the initial reaction to any sort of trauma or pain is anger, which I think is 
necessary to like, like I see anger as sort of this bridge to get us somewhere else, but it's not a place we have to, we can't sit there. We can't park ourselves in the anger. Right. Um, but I do feel that there's because, you know, femininity in general, I think stopped being valuable and, and valued after the agricultural revolution that like, we thought we had to be men in order to be powerful. So it's like, Oh, okay men are aggressive or, you know, shadowy masculine qualities, aggressive and angry and silencing. Like, I guess we have to respond in that way too, because it's the only one way to be heard because sitting back and being quiet and still and vulnerable is vulnerable and can be taken advantage of, which it has, but I don't really see any other way forward (laughs) unless we do that. I remember, I don't don't know even sure how this actually plays in, but the like, the most sort of robust debate prior to like this kind of neo-Renaissance consciousness that we're having about gender rights and equality now. Um, When I was in grad school at Harvard, like there was like a foreshadowing of this and all of the talk and to Harvard's credit, like and academia in general, like they are usually like sort of more hypersensitive to many of these issues, right? Academia has lots of problems, and I would argue that it's become sort of like uh, like oversensitive and rampant, like, um, and sort of less of the bastion of free speech that it used to be. But all that being said, the big debate that I remember when I was in graduate school was Harvard had done all of this empiricism and studying around um, who the percentage of people that talk in class, right? Mm-hmm. And it was all about, like, raising your hands. And, like, the basic, like, synopsis of the study was that women contribute almost equally in class at Harvard, right? And uh, uh, like, look, like, look at your sample size. These are already people who have the, I was on the, I was the one student a year on the admissions committee at Harvard. And the year I was on there, they rejected 1100 applicants with perfect SAT scores, right? So you're already taking like a certain (laughs) slice of, I didn't even know 1100 people nationally got perfect SATs, right? So like, you're already taking like, so these are like, already like strong, accomplished, powerful women. And even those women in this context, like they didn't, they spoke almost in terms of parity with men in class, but not first. Mm. So uh, like until the average class was like 55 minutes long or something, like it wasn't until minute like 37 in the class that women would like raise their hands Um, like in equal numbers with men. So by default, they actually often ended up getting like shorter periods of time talking because Mm -hmm. there was like this kind of initial like reticence, maybe not even reticence, let me me frame it positively, like an initial instinct to listen (laughs) before speaking, which is actually like kind of a funny gendered quality if you think about it. Not that there's any such thing as a gendered quality, yeah. but like according to these surveys, that was the general inclination. So that was the big debate on <clears throat> campus, right? Yeah. Like when I was there, like, do you raise your, do you let women speak first? Because they, they in, in aggregate, they tend not to do so. Right. Yeah. And whether to like overcorrect for a problem that, or to just sort of act in a way that feels authentic and natural. I feel like I'm probably the outlier to this because I, I I also went to a school that was predominantly women. So maybe that was a difference and it was a pretty like artsy fartsy liberal. liberal Wait, where'd you go to school again? Sarah Lawrence. Oh, (laughs) wait, Sarah Lawrence. Wait, this is like, 
<laughs> Wait, why did we start off the podcast with like the Naval Academy versus Sarah Lawrence? Sarah yeah. Lawrence is like the quintessential yeah. definition. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and it was it was weird too. I mean, I I studied gender and sexuality at Sarah Lawrence, and and I which was amazing and great, and I learned a lot. I was just talking about this with friends last night. Like having said that, though, I always knew that I sort of like sit outside of this like sort of prominent feminist. Um, I don't know. I mean, if this was pre PC culture, I guess, but I was like, I could, and I was young and I didn't know exactly how to explain what I believed, but I just felt like I sat outside of the conventional wisdom of like most everything that was being taught. And, and I think, I don't know, I was, my dad's gay. So I had a very like unique perspective on like what it meant to be a man and, and masculinity. And my dad is like, like an alpha male, you know, he's not, a sort of flowery, like flamboyant person, you would often maybe not even know that he's gay. Um, and so I think I just like learned not consciously, but like this integration of sort of like masculine and feminine, like I've always known I was a woman and I pretty much, I mostly heterosexual, I guess, but like I was always very outgoing and I would raise my hand constantly and like talk too much to the point where I felt like I felt self-conscious about it. And, um, but yeah, I, I, it's like in that I, I want to be sympathetic as well because I do feel like I have this unique experience, you know? So I'm very like, men are great. Like I love masculinity. I totally see the value. But at the same time, I realize that not everyone has had that experience. So it's like, I want to do this simultaneous thing of like, give them space to express their anger and come to terms with whatever they need to come to terms with. But I'm always thinking like two steps ahead, like, okay, now what? Like, now what do we do with that? And how do we want to live with each other? I think is kind of the basic question you're asking. Uh, By the way, that hand raising debate seems so fucking benign, right? (laughs) Can we go back to the hand raising debate? Because things are really charged right now. I mean, but I'm so fascinated by it because of course, in my experience, it's like, you know, how much about this, and of course, a lot of my issues with the Me Too movement, I think, was this sort of, like, self-victimization of women and femininity. And again, like, I'm probably privileged in a hundred million different ways, but, you know, raise your hand or don't raise your hand. Like, no one's telling you not to raise your hand in, in at least this fucking context at Harvard, I would assume, right? Um, or, or many others in which I think a lot of us privileged folk operate yeah raise your hand lean in like what you're effectively saying is like let me empower you to like or don't to be an equal but don't blame necessarily blame a structure or a framework for the fact that you're not I mean I think that's and I think it works both ways right like women leaning into their masculinity or, or men leaning into their femininity like is a vulnerable space and something that might feel uncomfortable or scary, but it doesn't mean we don't do it. And I think also not neglecting, like we said, like for me, I do think it's like a energetically feminine quality to sort of sit back and listen. I'm going to like embrace that and own that. And if I want to speak up, I'll speak up because I have that power too, you know? Yeah. I Look, I, I've both thought about these things deeply and not deeply, <laughs> right? I... For me, there's like a there, there are many fundamental issues that we're facing, but among them, the rise of identity politics and the amount of times that we 
the amount of time that we spend defining ourselves as like an in-group and versus an out-group and how that relates to power and these bastions of power. We are all um, culpable in this in our own way and in many ways, right? In some ways, like, I'm a veteran. Sometimes I sort of identify as a veteran, um, and that's that's good. I do have this, like, sort of, this is much bigger than, you know, me too or any of these things, but I do have this, like... <sighs> This, this nervousness, this anxiety, um, this idea that the rise of this sort of balkanization and factionalization of people in general, of like walling ourselves into these little camps because we hold power because of like whatever said identity is, whether that's like gender or race or whatever. I Like when you say two steps ahead, like I just want to be like, you know, Four steps ahead to the great promise of yeah. like American melting potism, <laughs> yeah, where sure. like like none yeah. of us like like none of us garner like sort of power or protection or advantage from any of like what we would call like our identities, right? right? And right. like, look, I know that's an easy thing to say as like you know someone of privilege, like in a white male, and lots of people would assail me for that but I don't know in some ways like it's all bullshit too right like you know like I'm I'm half Jewish my mom's Jewish his family is Jewish we survived the Holocaust like right like yeah. that could be an identity yeah, for same. me right yeah, like I'm gonna yeah. I'm a veteran like I don't know at some point we're all such mutts yeah. that like I barely can understand like identity politics anymore. And I've started to feel that it's become so corrosive to the national discourse and the national conversation. I don't know. I'm like you, I kind of want to just like push past it where we can just be like, okay, you're a human. I'm a human. Like let's work on the issues from that starting point. Yeah. I don't know. If you're open to it, I'd love to sort of talk about how you were personally affected by all of this. And, and I feel like as someone that maybe like me is thinking five, six steps ahead and maybe relatively impatient to sort of have to like sit back and just like stop, (laughs) you know, and like give space for like shit to blow over, um, must have been really challenging. Um, so I'd love to, if you could just talk about what happened, trust me, like, yeah, (laughs) I've been spending two years waiting for shit to blow over. No, I, I get it. Um, well, of of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, look, we're, we're half a bottle of Chardonnay deep. I'm happy to talk about anything. (laughs) Great. Say a lot of things I should say. No, (laughs) uh, no, like, look, I'm actually super happy to talk about it. Um, so one of the things that I love and appreciate about you is that we were at, um, as, this is a perfect segue from the white privilege conversation. So there we were at Soho Malibu having rosé or something on the deck, you know, yeah. up over the Pacific Ocean uh-huh. at Soho House and uh, like having this like really fired up conversation. I mean, I've adored and appreciated you from afar for a long time. But like when we were in the heart of it, there was like a woman who was like really charged and triggered about I can't even remember now, like. Uh, this whole conversation yeah. around like me too. Oh, we were talking about an act. Oh, uh, a comedian. What was the comedian's oh, name? Oh, Aziz Ansari. Aziz Ansari. Yeah. Yes. Uh. Yes. <laughs> we got into like a three hour Aziz Ansari yeah. debate with like, like four people. Can, can we say who was there? Can I just. Uh, yeah. Uh, I think is so. Is it too late? To no, say? I mean, no, no. To, yeah. Like, <laughs> 
You yeah, gotta say it say now, Kaj, right? Yeah. yeah. It's the Chardonnay. Sorry. A, a group of our friends were there. Uh, our friend, who's a famous author, not other than Chris Ryan, our other <laughs> famous friend. author yeah. friend. Chris, our friend Chris Ryan yeah. was there. Um, our other famous author friend was there. Yeah. I was there. And then there was some random woman who was like lambasting Aziz Ansari, which I consider to be, you know, it, among definitely not the most. Definitely the, at least the second most benign Me Too case or whatever, right. but in, in the sort of more benign category. And I hadn't yet to encounter someone who held so much vitriol towards Aziz Ansari, right? Like for sure some of these other like high profile Me Too figures. Um, but I, I, I always thought Aziz Ansari was, you know, at most or at minimum, the starting point for like the kind of nuanced conversation totally. that you and I were yeah. talking about. And she was like, I don't want to be hyperbolic about it, but like effectively calling him like a rapist. And I think yeah. you and I were like trying to push back. Um, uh, well, I was like gently trying to change the conversation because yeah. I was like, like I, this is triggering for me. Yeah, exactly. Right. Especially yeah. because I was falsely accused of right. harassment. Right. right. Uh, but you were amazing. You were, <laughs> well, you were I like, tried. I'm just going to take out two samurai swords and dissect <laughs> all of your arguments, like something out of the Kill Bill movie. <laughs> and so yeah, anyways, I got, I got no, a like, and the up. reason it was triggering for me. And just to be clear, you know, like what happened to me is not a case of me too. What happened to me is a case of bad journalism and a false uh, representation. Mm. And it was so hard as someone who has spent a career over a decade in journalism getting shot at pursuing the truth to have somebody be like extraordinarily lazy or sloppy. And basically what happened to me is I was working at Vice at the time. Um, and I was a, you know, correspondent traveling all the time and I had an, imp and then two years after I left Vice to, for, to do a bunch of other series at different networks, uh, an impl an article came out in the newspaper, the Daily Beast, um, and they kind of used me as like a hook, a lead in to the artist saying that I had acted inappropriately towards one of the employees and the, um, the allegation, the insinuations, because they weren't, there was never like an allegation that like I, you know, tried to kiss someone or like made a pass at them or anything like this. This it, the, the worst of the insinuations was that the employee came over to my house where you're sitting right now um, and that I had my shirt off, um, which was probably true. Like the beach is a block away. I was like running late for a meeting, like total accident. Right. Or things like yeah, that. It's I like definitely it's illegal for you to have your shirt off for sure. Well, yeah, look, <laughs> look, was, was that like, was that? I'm like a little jealous. Like, yeah. why didn't you come right. to this podcast? Shirtless yeah, you guy, got the, the short fuck? shorts. Yeah. She got the shirt off. Yeah. Right. Like I'm just coming from my, on Sundays I play in this crazy thing called underwater torpedo league. So <laughs> I'm just like, I showed up in my effectively my speedo. Yeah. And I did kind of a similar thing to her, yeah. right? Like you were sitting here. So I worked from home, which yeah. was something the article never mentioned. And like, I was running late that day. I was coming from my morning swim. I had my shirt off. Like I apologized. Like I went back and changed. Anyways, that was the, that was the, like, for all of that, an article was written. Um, that was really more about vice than about me, hmm. but it insinuated somehow that I had, you know, acted inappropriately with this employee and like, just, you know, um, for the record, like none of that is true. It was a gross, gross, like egregious ab 
abusive journalism. They never called me or talked to me. They just wrote this article, and they kind of used that um, to talk about vice culture writ large. Um, mm-hmm. And there was a lot of legitimacy to the stuff about vice culture. There was a lot of fucked up stuff going on there. Uh, unfortunately, in my case, they just got it wrong. So there's like a whole rabbit hole we could go down in terms of um, like sort of misinformation and how stuff gets mischaracterized. Like I have a friend who has an entire wall in his house devoted to this, right? So he has the original headline of Dewey Defeats Truman. Um, and he has like Lusitania sinks, all passengers okay. Wow. Right, like yeah. all of these famous headlines where the media got it wrong. And this, uh, for myself, falls firmly into that category. Um, so there's, that's a whole thing. And I've written about like when journalism doesn't do its job. And especially in this day and age, in this kind of like, Trumpian post-truth apocalyptic nightmare that we're living in where nobody can know what's real and stuff, um, how important it is for journalists to actually like do their job and get it right. So that, so that, that happened. This article comes out hugely embarrassing. The hardest part about it, hands down for me, um, was because, you know, it attacked, uh, you know, who I was and how I engaged with the people in the world totally antithetical to my actual character and who I am. And I was like, Jesus, like PC women's movement, right? Like I'm the dude who marched in Washington with the pink hat on. Like I'm, I'm your ally. Like don't shoot your allies. Like I am your dude. I was raised by strong women. Like I volunteer to teach women self-defense classes. Like this is, this is not me. So like separating out the false journalism aspect of it, um, it's, and, and that part, it's also made it really tough for me because like, these are issues that I like care deeply about, right? Like I care deeply about like women's rights and women's safety. Um, and I put like, I think I put my, um, actions like where my words are in that domain and I have for a long time. So it's really hard then if you Google me that like an article pops up like on Vox with like, 243 men accused of harassment and like just like one more thing just to tell you like the media component of it and I do think the media is like an important piece of the conversation I don't know how much you've focused on it in the past but like talk about like adding kerosene to this conversation where we probably all need to just like pump the brakes and have the kind of conversations you and I are talking about on on the couch right um the, you know, the articles, like when that thing happened, like, holy shit, like Huffington Post at one point wrote an article about this, you know, it's this echo chamber effect. Nobody ever talked to me. Nobody did what you are doing right now and asked me like, gosh, like what the hell happened? What is this? Not a single journalist, but there was like a dozen articles about me all based on this like erroneous information. Um, and so, the one Huffington Post article was like, you know, it called me like, uh, the headline was like, two abusers linked to this certain person. Like, nobody ever accused me of abuse. <laughs> like, yeah. I showed up to a meeting at my own house with my shirt off by accident. Like, yeah. okay, like, am I, did I want it? Did I mean to do that? No, like, right. totally. Like, is that, does that constitute abuse? Like, holy shit, like, what universe are 
we were living in. So Yeah, and I know, I mean, I heard when I was listening to your conversation with Kyle that, like, that relationship with this woman was problematic. But, of course, after this is all published and out there, the last thing you can do is, in this culture and day and age, say that, you know, because it looks like you're... I couldn't then, yeah, uh, or I was like cautioned, right? Not well, yeah, to that's then. Yeah, yeah. I feel unshackled, like now, Good. to say, like, no, like that was a terrible performing employee who got like fired, you know, for underperformance, and who was on review right. at the time, right? And like, was she a little bitter, like probably or whatever, like, and then like said a bunch of stuff that she thought was in confidence to a journalist who was looking for um, facts to fit her theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how I really assess what happened. Like she had this narrative in her mind cause that was hot right now. And me too gets a bazillion Easy clicks target, and she thought yeah. she had a scoop. Yeah. Right. So she didn't do like the hard work of like calling the person had that journalist actually called me. I would have been like, come over to my house. Like, I know sitting in like a New York cubicle, it seems weird, like, but lots of people come to my house for meetings. We are having a meeting in my house. You can see my yeah. conference screen right now. Like, yeah. that's what I did, right? Like, would I do it again? Probably not, which is kind of an interesting thing about like, it has, I feel like it's changed the work dynamic a yeah. little bit. Well, I was going to ask too, and I think the sort of like normal question of people like, oh, what have you learned in this experience? So I don't mean that in the conventional way yeah. of like not showing up to meetings without your shirt off. Cause like, honestly, everyone's lost. Um, <laughs> but more like, I, I am curious, like in that sort of period of feeling like shackled to silence and sort of not being able to speak about it and probably reflecting on these dynamics in a, you know, within journalism, probably within the SEAL community. Like, I'm curious to know what that experience gave you in that sense. I don't think, just to be clear that I'm like totally out of the tunnel, I'm still sort of wrestling with Mm. the aftermath of what it all means. I just like am no longer going to be quiet about it because I'm supposed to be demure. Like, no, like this was a false accusation and this injured my life and like hurt me professionally and stuff. And like, and also I, I, everything was so charged and polarized then that I think people were like, Oh, you have to be really careful what you say and everything. But I, I mean, so I don't know that I've like learned and absorbed all of the lessons, right? Right. Like, or that there's one macro overriding theme Mm. from it certainly a bunch of little things. And I'm just like in the process, like candidly, you're only probably the second person that I've spoken besides Kyle that I've really spoken publicly about. I've done some writing and and stuff like that. So there's all kinds of micro things that I've learned, like, (laughs) you know, don't meet with employees at your house, you know, even though I had sort of done that with like many male and female I work from home, so like, yeah. okay, like now we got to go like offsite or something. But anyways, I don't actually think that's the lesson because no. the truth is like, honestly, like I feel like you should be able yeah, yeah. to meet with people anywhere at, at any time, right? Yeah. Um, I think now, whatever stage I'm at now, the lesson is like, look, just talk to people, right? Like had that employee come to me and said like, this made me feel uncomfortable, right? I would have been like, oh my God, I am so sorry. Like a thousand apologies. Like, let me make you feel better. You have like all the wrong ideas, you know, but, um, but yeah, so. 
I don't know. Yeah, guess I've learned nothing. Yeah, <laughs> great, thanks. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's like you would have been the per- like that's the crazy thing. Like, regardless, even of all the stuff that you've done, let's say for women or women's rights, it's like anybody that knows you knows that that's like you would have been the most receptive to that sort of feedback or like honest, you know. It's my leadership style, right? right. Is like there are other people who have a much, um, you know, my leadership style was kind of like etched and forged in the SEAL teams, where, uh, which is, has a much flatter horizontal hierarchical structure than traditional military because basically you live, work, and deploy overseas mm. with these 16 guys and you're so close to them and you have to like, you're they are your friends like they are deep close friends and the first journalism place i worked at was current tv which was al gore's tv Mm -hmm. network and i had a group of uh journalists there laura ling who's lisa ling's sister mariana van zeller uh, a guy adam yamaguchi another guy named christoph putzel and we were all like best friends so we all like worked together and best friends laura was our boss but like not really you know like uh, and and so um my leadership style is much more inclusive. Like it's much more like, Hey, this is democratic and merit and in more of a meritocracy, very less hierarchical. And I guess in a traditional structure, it's like that it's, it's a traditional, this is like, Hey, we all participate Let the best idea win. like we're closer to peers and equals than some kind of hierarchical thing. So I, I would say the lessons, like I'm still mulling the kind of lessons in terms of, this like male female tension that is so requisite within both the workplace and society. Now, most of my lessons, frankly, and this is more micro were on why it's so important to get it right. Like as journalists, we have to maintain, we have to, I I believe it is important to like keep a couple of principles, but the most important principle is the, um, <laughs> the same thing that's etched on the wall at CIA headquarters is like, you know, sh- like you should, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Right. Is that like, we have this like allegiance to what really happened, you know? And I felt like that's what was violated in, in this article regarding me, but more importantly, like it's, it's really brought into focus and clarified the responsibility that we have as journalists to tell the truth. Uh, I think there's a secondary, um, principle there of like harm minimization right sometimes we have to call out like abusive power structures and people um but a lot of the like in my mind that article that was written about vice that included me like it didn't help anybody it didn't help this employee named phoebe who is my employee and in fact a lot of the academic data now is starting research is starting to point in the direction that like call out culture Mm. can be as harmful to the to the victim as to the person that they are accusing so anyways none of that matters in like a high frenzied media environment that is dependent on clicks and i do think you can't separate out like the kind of raging inferno that happened in the kind of me too movement which is amazing and important and a conversation we should have but like you can't separate it out from like the corporate interest that that fueled that fire which are like digital publications that needed clicks and every time like you clicked on a new person accused of it that story got a bazillion have have we ever talked about has anybody ever talked to you about chartbeat 
Mm-mm. You're familiar with Chartbeat? Mm-mm. Chartbeat's this thing that exists in digital newsrooms. Basically, every newsroom has it. It's a big board like that like that board up there and it's a program and it tracks all of the articles and how they're trending and the number of views and how it's doing. And that thing sits like a giant corporate overlord in every newsroom, a huge, huge screen. So you can see how articles are doing and trending and that's how digital publications make money. Right. And if you're a reporter writing a print article stuck, you know, in, in your little cubicle world, in you know New York or or San Francisco or LA or anywhere, right? Like you are staring at. We had an advice. You're staring at Chartbeat, seeing what does best, right? And it's um, what does best is not your podcast right. talking about these very complex and deep and, and nuanced issues from a human perspective. Like what yeah. does best is like um, James Franco accused of harassment by six more like flies to the top of chart beat. Um, and I do think like that really like sort of powered the frenzy of that conversation. And I'm not sure to, uh, there, there's plenty of positive externalities and, and just like positive stuff that came out of me too, which are like things like this podcast where we can have real conversations. Yeah. But I think we're, there's also a ton of ex- like negative externalities that came out of it, you know? Like, yeah. Including myself in that category. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's a totally, and I I think about, I mean, especially like right now with the media. I wonder, do you, do you have any thoughts, or have you thought about like what is that about human nature that we're so, or m- most of us are so, you know, that buzzworthy sort of black and white bullshit is appealing like because I don't actually think we're super polarized if you were to actually like sit down and talk to people but for whatever reason like and maybe it's I have this conversation with my dad a lot who's like gay and a father and like sort of exists like you within these multiple different worlds you know um as do I I think and I think there's so many people that are so threatened by like well but this is what I was told I am and this is what I was told I'm supposed to do and anything that sort of sit out sits outside of that is threatening so I'm going to be pulled toward these sort of like polarized black and white viewpoints even though I don't know it's I think there's some like inauthenticity to it I don't actually think it's legit I, I mean look I have nothing to back this up yeah. other than pontificating yeah. about life whatever it. my <laughs> yeah. like you know yeah. minuscule experiences yeah. yeah is that in some ways there's this binary thing in human nature is that um some people want to reduce towards simplicity and some people want to reduce towards complexity mm. right and i think you and i part of the reason that we are friends and like part of the strength of our friendship is that like we really want to explore this idea of complexity, whereas other people really need certainty. They need things to fit in nice, tight boxes. It is the process through which they understand the world. And I think you and I, um, just by constitution or whatever it is, upbringing, um, are much more interested in like cross-pollinization of ideas between silos as opposed to erecting like strict intellectual um, boxes. And yeah, I think it's a lot easier. And frankly, I think it's like intellectually lazy. It's a lot easier to put things in nice, tidy packages, but you know, the lesson of, I've started to think about the world 
um, the same way I, I think about uh, Pakistan, a place where I spent a lot of time. I, I always say this thing about Pakistan. The more time I spend there, the less I understand it. Like, <laughs> that's how I've started to think about the world. But yeah, um, some people revel in that. But I do think a large portion of the population likes to be spoon-fed these things in nice, simple packages like with these labels like, you know, abuser, anti-woman, like whatever, yeah. whatever it is, you know, like conservative, progressive, like all that shit. When the truth is, you know, it's probably a stretch for me. It's much more your domain of expertise. Whereas the truth is probably like everything, like sexuality exists on a spectrum yeah. of some sort. I mean, we're just like, we haven't had much spectrum-y kind of conversation around this topic. Yeah. I'd love to talk about spectrum-y conversation. I feel like I don't quite, again, terrible memory, remember what, I feel like we originally started the conversation that ended in Aziz Ansari with you actually talking about the seals. And I feel like maybe trauma or like masculinity or something, you sort of posed yeah. a question to the group, um, which I'm totally blanking on, but maybe you remember. Oh, no, I no, I got okay, it. Okay, yeah. I, I thought I wasn't going to get it, yeah, but uh, I, 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 did you see me glance at the wide bottle? <laughs> I was like, am I going to be able to pull this out of my memory palace? <laughs> I'm, I'm but impressed. then the wine bottle was the connective tissue for Amazing. the because we had a similar wine bottle yeah, yeah, yeah. there uh, at Soho Malibu. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so what happened was... Um, at some point, I had just reached a zenith of frustration with this conversation. Uh, you were amazing, um, like a ninja, just in there kind of like dissecting arguments. Our other buddy, uh, Neil, was kind of playing his like classic moderator Yeah, mediator role. for yeah, sure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I don't even think mediator. Yeah. More moderator. Yeah, that's true. Like, that's true. His woke moderator role. Yes. Right. Like asking the right questions yeah. to both parties. Yeah. Cr Chris was playing. Right. Exactly. Like yeah. the neutral arbiter yeah. um, staying out of the fray. Chris was just like, I can't remember his I feel like Chris wasn't participating that much, actually. But maybe I'm to. wrong. He was. I probably I just, just wasn't letting anyone else talk. So I was like, I no. <laughs> right. And I felt like Chris sort of was just like a little more exasperated and sort of like he just yeah. couldn't even like begin to engage. He felt like it was stupid. Yeah. I think he felt the conversation was stupid. I think he like chimed in and probably like summarized a lot of our viewpoints in like a more eloquent way than any of the rest of us could when he felt it was necessary to yeah. do so. Um, but he's also heard me like with the spiel that yeah. I have around this. You were definitely the most willing to engage. Basically at some point after this had gone on ad nauseum for yeah. like three hours, like hearing, you know, why Aziz's actions were equivalent with rape and, and all this. And like, which you can tell by the tone of my voice, like I took a, a different perspective on that. Yeah. Um, and, and mostly like, you know, like this thing's still raw for me. Like, you know, I got like falsely accused of this, you know, by like lazy journalism. Um, and so I was like, look, I, can we just talk about anything else? And so I think mostly what I was doing was like, uh, like, Hey, let's change the topic kind of conversation. Um, but, uh, what I was saying was like, look, uh, the reason I want to change the topic is, like, basically sometimes it's hard for me to talk about this. Like, it actually started to, f like, while I think this conversation around, like, you know, gender is important and, like, why the conversation around Me Too and Aziz Ansari is important, I was, like, 
I have a hard time at this moment how much like oxygen in the room this conversation is soaking up. And I think I had just gotten back from like northern Nigeria where I had um, spoken with this uh, this 16-year-old woman named Zainab who had been like raped by uh, captured, kidnapped, raped by Boko Haram fighters, married off to a Boko Haram fighter, then like got liberated by a group of forces I was with, and she was returned to her village. They wanted her to have an abortion. She refused to have an abortion. Um, and she's like, no, because if I do that, then I'm just like them, these murderers. Like, anyways, mm-hmm. I just seen all of this trauma overseas, like people who had like, like no shit, like real like real hardcore problems right and like this conversation is important and i don't want to minimize it right but like i will say it now like it does not compare to your whole village being killed and being raped and sold off to a boko haram fighter and i was just so tired of how many conversations at soho malibu were revolving around me too and not revolving around like boko haram in nigeria and because i had like recently gotten back it was Boko Haram in Nigeria being a metaphor for like war and conflict around the world. Right. Totally. Like, uh, I think I was just like, I can't listen to this shit anymore. Yeah. You know, like, and I was trying to say like, like, let's just keep the relative scale and importance of this conversation in perspective. Uh, that argument, by the way, went nowhere. If you yeah. remember, well, I think so I tried to actually, now? Was I, that right? I do. Yeah. yeah. And I think I actually tried to like, so a thread from what you said into this larger discussion, because this woman we were with was talking about an experience of being on the beach, I think like in a bikini, I think she like had it untied or something. And like some guy came up to her and touched her back or I don't know what it was. And, you know, she sort of went through this whole journey of like, at first I didn't know what to do and I felt ashamed. And then I was like, my friend talked to me and like, fuck that. Like that guy is an abuser. And And I tried to say like, you know, the other big piece that about, about this that I feel, which I think probably actually ties a little bit into your experience and the SEALs or just like war and trauma in general is like none of like my question is, what's that dude's story? You know, like what kind of trauma has that dude been through that, you know, he acts in some sort of inappropriate, crazy way? And maybe that's a minor example, but I think any man that's been accused of rape or any horrible thing, there's a, there's a, or shirtlessness. Yeah. Or shirtlessness. (laughs) But I think for you, like that's a, you know, I wouldn't actually say there was any sort of crime or malice in that action, but those that clearly are that, you know, drugging women and raping them, uh, which seems very clearly morally not okay. Even still, like to me, like locking people up or just canceling them or not giving them voice to actually work through any of that. And look, maybe they're not capable of that. I recognize that not everyone is going to be able to like go to therapy and dig into their childhood trauma. But to me, if we don't give men, especially let's say men who are engaged in these very like closed off masculine worlds, the opportunity to fucking speak like, are we not just fueling the fire we're trying to put out by demonizing, you know, men uh, and not allowing them to one? I mean, I sort of wanted to talk to you, too, about, like, uh, what role, you know, the SEALs or, or maybe just any sort of military group 
plays in regard to masculinity for for boys, like this sort of in male initiation. Yeah. Um, and one that maybe not all of that is quote unquote bad, right, or superficial. They're actually seeking something that we no longer have, some sort of like ritualistic transition into manhood. Um, but also how trauma so severely affects us over the course of our lives. And if we don't give everyone, men and women, the opportunity to sit down and process that, like all the shit's just going to keep happening. To me, that's where it all comes from. Yeah. And just so we're like not super tangential, like I do think it's germane to this like (laughs) inane hilarious now lives in infamy conversation that we keep referencing at Soho Malibu, right? Like, I, I think these are real questions. I used to sometimes sort of as a pejorative, but like as a, like an internal critique of the SEAL team say that we have a culture of, um, of boys raising boys instead of a culture of men raising boys. Mm. I think you can... I think that's less true now than it was then, but I think you can extrapolate that out to these military cultures in general. Um, What I'll say is that there's a lot of improvement on the horizon. Um, The military, like it or not, is often a social incubator. We say they, they don't like that label and title, but like some actually really interesting, amazing advancements like start off as in the military, right? So there's all these examples of, um, you know, integrated units in World War II or like all black units in World War II that came to prominence. Now, did that, did that like make the civil rights movement of the 1960s unnecessary, right? Did the Tuskegee, Tuskegee Airmen, uh, you know, uh, make the civil rights movement unnecessary? Like absolutely not, right? But they did like, create inspirational models and examples that I think helped within that civil rights movement. And in similar ways, some of the things that are happening within military culture, I think are uh, inspirational models for some of the better things that are happening within mainstream culture. So here's here's a concrete example um, from the special operations community. No women in special forces when we entered these two longest wars that we've been involved in since September 11th in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, Over time, what we realized when we were going out and door kicking in Iraq and Afghanistan is that we were often going into homes and because of the cultural difference, um, you know, a lot of the women in the homes wouldn't talk to us, right? When, Mm. and understandably so, we like kicked down their yeah. We'd breach their door with explosives at 3 a.m. and, like, drag their husbands and sons out of the house. So a lot of the women wouldn't talk to us. But even if they wanted to talk to us, there was such a cultural taboo between engaging with, right. like, scary American commandos in uniform. Um, so that created two problems. One, we couldn't get intel, like, off of them. That's a very pragmatic problem. The second is that there was, like, this honor problem, whereas, like, if an American commando went and, like, you know, touched you know, somebody's wife or daughter, like, touched, like, move them out of the way, put them up against the wall to make sure they didn't have a gun, frisk them, like, anything like that. The men felt like they had, like, as a sense of honor, had to, like, then attack Americans. So a lot of these, like, you'd be driving down the street in one of these places, and, like, a random Iraqi would, like, start 
shooting at you with an old like musket rifle right and so anyway so it created a lot of problems so because of those dynamics that were happening um and women weren't even allowed in combat when we started these wars they weren't allowed in frontline combat units we started integrating women into these units into the special operations units right so they weren't seals but they um and some of them have written like great books and right and they started to break the uh this ban because they effectively were already in front lines. So these women, um, I'm trying to think of the name of what they called them. doesn't matter, but like they had like these all women's units that were embedding with special operations units and helping them on missions. Right. And that helped, um, get rid of the Pentagon's ban on women in combat. Right. Also women pilots flying frontline missions. They were basically saying like, look, women are already in combat. Let's get rid of this ridiculous arbitrary rule. Now, we could have a much longer discussion about whether women's ability to fight in combat actually represents progress for yeah. women or, or not, but like, Agreed. it certainly represents yeah. equality. We're going to have to do like five more yeah. podcasts. I don't know if clearly, it represents like, progress, but it definitely represents yeah. equality. I yeah, think we yeah. could a- agree sure. on that. Yes, yes. You, you women, you have <laughs> you equal women. rights to get shot with us yeah. uh, in the front lines. You know, we've really made so much progress <laughs> yeah. as a society. Yeah, I guess. I, I, my mom would. My mom's, uh, my mom's like this. I was raised by like a, a very strong, like amazing woman. Um, and, you know, she would happily declare herself a feminist, even though she doesn't like labels. But like, yeah. you know, um, she she's a Bennington girl, like of your seven sisters schools, yeah, yeah. like kind of um, ilk or whatever. But she she wouldn't like this argument because I don't you know, she my mom is a true pacifist. So she doesn't consider her wouldn't consider war progress in any means, you know? So, but I do think that there is this idea that, um, in all male societies like the military, um, can be incubators for things for progress that we want to make within society writ large. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it's such a, I just, I, I totally. Cause you're breaking gender barriers right, in extreme right, places. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I I read this great book recently. I always forget the order of words in the title, but it was like lover, warrior, something, something. It was about basically like looking at masculinity through a mythological realm, which I'm super into. Um, But it talked about the military as taking the place of like hunter-gatherer, prehistoric, like ritualistic transitions between boyhood and manhood and so I felt like I I had a lot more sympathy I think toward and empathy toward this desire to like be a part of a team and like operate in this sort of like masculine realm with other men which I think is actually super beneficial Um, but also thinking about you know like you said whether it was boys raising boys or whether these institutions were actually accomplishing the same thing that these sort of more prehistoric rituals we're doing. Um, but uh, I just, I think it's an, again, like a conversation that needs to be had and to like take the vitriol out and, um, and to see like masculinity for masculinity's sake. I asked this like great question on Instagram relatively recently. It might've been a couple of years ago now, but I asked people in one of those like submit and answer things to name like positive masculine qualities 
when embodied by a man. So like, don't give me like, oh, aggression is good when embodied by a woman or not by a man, right? Mm. Like what are positive and like nobody could fucking answer the question. Like it was a really hard question or something for people to think about, you know, whether it was dominance, which is like, or like, you know, protecting even it's like, no, like I don't need protecting. I'm a woman. Right. It was like everything had this filter of, you know, the current state of affairs over it. And I just like, what if that like, again, like three steps ahead, what if that just weren't the case? Like, what if we could, really like honor even if we're not doing it properly the desire for like men to be men yeah (laughs) totally like like i i feel like like we're driving somehow like that this whole thing is driving us towards a place we don't want to actually end up at yeah we're driving to the wrong destination right the the destination we want to get at is like where men and women like celebrate both like the things, the characteristics and qualities that they have in common, but also the ones that are different. Right. And the current conversation doesn't seem to allow for that. Um, But yeah, I don't know. I I was just like thinking I, I have this friend who's a famous actor and he's, he's really like forward leaning um, on gender issues and I commend him for that. And he's been trying to do this thing with like conversations around men and, and all of this stuff. But, um, I saw him give a, like a speech or an Instagram shout out. Same thing these days, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah the other, totally. <laughs> yeah. And, and he said, and, and he like, I remember him starting off the conversation with, I'm sorry for being a man. And I was like, Justin, what the fuck, man? Don't do that. Please. Like you are not helping women. Or like the future is female. Like can't the future be both of us? I just don't get it. Like I wish the phrase separate but equal wasn't so like politically and historically charged. didn't have such a bad reputation. Because I, I mean, I totally use it all the time, like with a disclaimer, but I do like things can be equal and not identical. Mm -hmm. Like, I wish that was a more widely understood concept. Yeah. And to like, to like come full circle to what we were talking about earlier about the corrosive nature of identity politics. Like this one is really, really harsh, but some of my, and and really controversial and like people will light me on fire for saying it. Um, but like some of my other close friends, like, um, you know, I see them like hashtagging, like believe women, right? Like, I, I actually hate this hashtag. Yeah, I hate it too. Oh, you hate it too. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> Felt like I what was really think, going think? out on a whim there. No. Yeah, but yeah, <laughs> of course you're predisposed. Like, no, I hate this hashtag, and partially because of what happened to me. Yeah, of um, which is like, no, I don't believe women. Right. Like I'm a journalist. Like I interview all kinds of people who lie to me. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, like I don't believe women. I don't believe men either. Right. I believe and seek the truth. Um, And so that kind of like default thing has been killing me lately um, because it's it's so polarizing and it takes sides so quickly just based on your identity. So when I say, you know, and the other thing that's made like this entire conversation so difficult for me is when I'm when I see somebody, you know, believe women I believe came out of the Kavanaugh. Yeah, hearings yeah, yeah, right yeah. 
Uh, I mean, I actually think it really started back with, like, Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas, right? Well, do you know, like, the history of the Me Too hashtag in general? Like, the woman that came up with this, like, many, many years ago? No, but I'd love to, like, go back and tell her, like, what a terrible well, concept but it was. it wasn't was. her... That's the thing. Like, the woman who came up with this, she was, like, abused sexually as a child and then started working with children, I think, who had similar experiences, like, as a therapist, but because of the constructs of like the therapeutic environment couldn't say like this happened to me too so she started this community of people who had had that experience to talk about it not in a vacuum but in private it was like all for them to start this community it wasn't at all about the blame game so like basically her hashtag and her idea and her group was taken and used into this right so like she actually this was not at all her idea or not at all what she and I haven't I haven't read or listened to her speak about the Me Too movement and what happened and what her thoughts on it are, but it's interesting to me that her idea was like... Well, it was supposed to be an empowerment tool for a private community. Yeah, exactly, and became... Yeah. Yeah, this sort of, like, I think, a little bit violent, like, media frenzied. Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, and again, these conversations are so much bigger than like gender equality conversations, oh, yeah. right? Like you could extrapolate them to all of this like hashtagging activism, clicktivism culture that we have. This is just like one small slice, uh, you know, on a very micro level. The other thing that was so, um, that for me is so hard about like having an acerbic intellectual reaction to something like Believe Women is that the second you say like, no, like, I don't like automatically as a default posture, believe women, just like I don't automatically, I think that's moronic. Like I would never write that hashtag, just like I would never write the hashtag believe men. Right. Right. Like, you know, cynical by nature. Like it's, you know, like that, you know, but then that puts you in the category of like all of these terrible people that you don't exactly. agree I'm with. I'm like the, called a conservative. It's just like, yeah, what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All yeah. of a sudden I'm like, whoa, whoa, we yeah. got to give this Kavanaugh dude a chance. Yeah, you exactly. know? Like, like, no. yeah. And on all of that excess, like any movement, I, I do think we have to be careful to guard against the excesses, even if the in, intention and azimuth um, is, is moral and important and, and yeah. overall good. Um, and, and one of the other things I'll just lay it all. I'll just lay it out there, like even though I'm not sure at this stage of wine that it's it's super <laughs> relevant. But you know, one of the other things I think we have to say is like we in the sort of harm minimization thing is like we have to be careful about like the carcasses that like we leave on the side of the road. One of the analogs that I try and make because I, I've done so much work in prison and so much work trying to work on the system of mass incarceration that we have, like multiple documentaries um, and lots of active. I used to produce this TV show called Lock Up, which is a documentary series about life in American prison. Um, One of the analogs I make is uh, one of the things I've heard, even from like, you know, Ronan Farrow obviously like helped launch the, he did all this incredible investigation into Weinstein, right? Which really was a catalyst for a lot of the stuff that we're seeing today extraordinary piece of journalism I would like not impugn what he did and the obstacles that he had to climb to get that Weinstein story out into the public sphere remember they tried to kill it like over and over again Um, but you know Ronan Farrow I heard him say this thing the other day 
Um, and I, I don't really know Ronan, but like his, his partner is a friend of mine. Like we worked on a show together. I respect them a lot. Um, one of the, I heard him say this thing like on Bill Maher, Bill Maher is like, well, what about all these people who've been like falsely accused? And he's sort of like, Hey, like you break a few eggs was like his effective answer, right? Like you break a few eggs to make an mm-hmm. omelet and you know, as as someone who's like egg got smashed a little bit, yeah. like that was that was hard to hear, partially because we would never accept that argument in in say the domain of capital punishment. Right. Right. We uh, say that yeah. like it's not worth it to have a system of capital punishment if we execute one innocent man. Yeah. Right. And I think if you apply that kind of similar philosophical approach to this kind of um like me too gendered conversation that we're having. It just gives us like a little bit of pause to move like deliberately and cautiously instead of in a, in a kind of like, um, you know, the witch hunt analog has been abused, right? Too much. But, um, in, instead of in this kind of like fast raging way, like where there's all these unintended consequences. Yeah. So I have one more question to ask you, but I have to pee so fucking badly. Can we pause real quick? Do we quick? pause? Can we yeah. pause? Can we take a pee pause break? Pause and pee. Okay. Pee pause. And we're back. Are we back? We're back. <laughs> so not that I want to talk about politics, like, or, yeah, not that I want to do that. But I'm curious, like, if you have a more optimistic or pessimistic viewpoint toward, like, what the fuck is going on in the media right now. And, and maybe it's nothing new. But uh, maybe it's just become a bit more obvious. Um, But I feel like, obviously, I think we've always, or I've always known, the media is full of corporate interests and, you know, biased in 600 different ways. But I feel there's, like, an acute nature to what's going on right now. And I'm, as a journalist, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about it and where you sort of, if you have hope that things are, like, falling apart to the point where they'll be rebuilt or whether we're just totally fucked. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Is that a big question? I, yeah, I was hoping <laughs> I was hoping your last question would be like, so how's dating life yeah. after being falsely accused of yeah. harassment? Um, yeah. This is this is really like I mean, That's I, I question, see your strategy. Actually. Ply me with wine. Get to me to talk about controversial topics. You know, say things I'm gonna regret. Like, I think like, you plied me with wine. Oh I yeah, like, as far as what went on. Yeah. One of the upsides of being falsely accused is it probably <laughs> never have to worry about running for public office, which in my life is probably a net benefit, right? Um, the, oh man. Yeah. Um, I don't know. In some ways, I want to remain eternally optimistic, but I share your sense of dread about the acute nature of of what's happening, right? Politics is always more um, sort of Hobbesian than it is Locke, I think, and I think that's true historically. Um, Even now, like, we talk about we talk about, you know, we're involved in these, the longest wars uh, in our nation's history, right? And that's terrible. Uh, and I wish everybody could come home. It's my friends who are dying over there, right? I've carried yeah. more caskets than, 
than somebody my age should. Um, but also, we have to keep it in perspective. You know, World War II, like five million people. That's probably not even the right number. Many millions of people perished in World War II. I mean, the actual number depends which country, right? Like yeah. 20 million Russians, right? Like, um, I mean, it's an insane number of people. So, uh, you know, we feel like... W- I think it's it is the nature of the world that we always feel like we are living in end times, right? And it certainly feels that way now. And politically it certainly feels that way. And my gut 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 intuition feels that the current system can't persist and sustain as it is because things are are so fucked up. The media side of it is is really complex. I think part of the reason things are so bad is because you're seeing the death rattle of the media system that we're in. The The digital disruption that happened when digital started taking over the world and, and changing these media institutions who had had a, a, a lot of sort of power and stability and now they're trying to figure out new models. The same thing happened in the music industry, right? And like, so digit the digital world is this massive dragon that's kind of just disrupting all of these industries and media is still figuring out its new footing and its revenue model. And by media, I like more specifically journalism, I, I don't really know where the future of journalism is going. Uh, I do know that Americans faith and I'm going to extrapolate that to to internationally as well I can just say people uh, people's faith in the institution of journalism is in not just peril but is basically in the grave not one foot in the grave like the entire body in the grave with like maybe one pinky sticking out above yeah. the grave like people's faith and trust in the institution of journalism has been eroded unbelievably and for the very first time in history that's also being driven in large part from the top so the idea that just everything is fake news um and that nothing can be known or can be true and you can't trust anything you read and the propagation of misinformation on these digital mediums is so extreme and so acute and the real problem with it is that like we're not all dealing with the same pool and set of information. So we can't even begin to have the kind of conversations that you want to have because we're literally living in different worlds. These algorithms are putting us and these filter bubbles are putting us in these worlds that like where we can't even find common ground because we have no common set of facts or working set of assumptions to even begin these conversations. And that feels particularly polarizing and dangerous. Um, I guess, like, because I have to remain eternally hopeful and uh, optimistic, uh, is that we have been in really dark times, both as a country and as and as a global community before, um, and necessity is the mother of invention. And we do find our way out of these caves, yeah. Right. I, like Chris would fight me yeah. if he was right here <laughs> on the notion of perpetual progress, I yeah, think yeah. is what he calls it. But I, 
I do think that, you know, so far we have, we have figured out, right. Every time there's a massive challenge, you know, we've been in these eras of, here's a journalism example of opinion journalism before where like opinion journalism was so rampant. Um, and they used to, and it used to all just be propaganda essentially. I mean, this goes back to the Gutenberg printing press, right? Yeah. The first, the printing press initially was used to issue apologies for the Catholic church. Right. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we've been in these times before where like say opinion journalism has like taken such hold. Right. And that ushered in the era of objective journalism. Right. And that reigned and persisted for many, many years or whatever. And now we've, we realized that the objective journalism is kind of this artifice that doesn't really work. Uh, my friend Molly Ivins, who passed now, but was one of my like, great mentors in journalism, said, um, I can never pretend to have the perspective, the same perspective as a 14-year-old from Compton. I am who I am, a person with all of my assumptions and all that stuff. So, um, so objective journalism reigned for a while. That artifice has kind of now been destroyed. We have a different challenge now, which is the propagation of misinformation and nobody knows, you know, what's real and and what sources are. I think there are things that will emerge, um, that will give us this common set of facts because, (laughs) and facts, facts are not facts, (laughs) this common set of beliefs to hold onto because facts don't exist, uh, in a political vacuum either, right? Even facts can be sort of changed and manipulated. There's this like really boring, but like asinine conversation in journalism about like, oh, we just give people the facts. Like, I'm not even sure that the facts matter, right? Facts need to be contextualized and understood within, um, within a bigger picture. So yeah, like how do I feel about the state of media? Fucking terrible. Yeah. Terrible. Right. Like some, you know, my case that we talked about being like a perfect example, some like obscure journalist can like, you know, chasing clicks, write a story um, without ever contacting the person who the story is about um, and write a bunch of stuff with no real check on it. That can spread the old, like, you know, a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to get its pants on. That can spread halfway around the world. Half the people believe it, and then the other half of the people don't believe it because everything that comes out is fake news, and it both, like, destroys life and destroys truth simultaneously. Like, that is a bad state of affairs that we are living in, and we don't know where to go to really understand what's happening in the world. The other component just to be really negative about it that's happening right now in in society is uh it's a quote from my friend Al Gore who I worked for at my very first television network he used to say that we're drowning in information and starving for knowledge you can go on the internet and like find all kinds of facts and you can google all kinds of shit right now but like do you really understand do you really have the the capacity to take all of this information at the world's fingertips and really know what it all means or how to apply that to your life or what's real and what's not. You got all this information and all these data points, but you can't like 
see the forest through the trees. So in some ways, the explosion of information, the availability of, of information, which was supposed to liberate us, has also trapped us again, too. So I don't know how we're going to navigate our way out of this morass. Um, but I see like these little like pockets of hopeful signs for the future. Um, yeah, uh, like a very small, dumb, benign example is Wikipedia, right? Which yeah. is this like group collaborative effort that relies on the wisdom of crowds and does a better job than Encyclopedia Britannica. Right. You know, we've, we've, we ripped down those in institutions, uh, and for a while, nothing stood there. But I don't know. It does seem to me, and again, Chris is, you know, going to uh, parachute in here. Like, he's going he's gonna to crash through the door <laughs> like he's on a SEAL team. You know, <laughs> he's going to breach the door and be like, you're wrong. No. You're wrong. Yeah. Well, like, we, uh, I mean, we talk about it all the time. I think progress, like, and we would both agree. Because I think I, I'm from a different generation. I feel like I don't know what else to do but be optimistic in a certain way. But, like, if you... The word progress is wildly problematic because I think in, in his version of progress that it's this like better, 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 like straight, upward, straight approach. For me, I see progress as like a cyclical thing, right? So you sort of have to like fucking fail and disintegrate and then come back to life. So, and I know he, there's a quote that he uses that's um, great that sort of explains that, but it's like we come back to the same place and know it for the first time, you know? So it's like, we've learned all this shit, we've failed, we've gained a lot of insight, and we come back, and we're like, okay, how do we do it better? Oh, okay, how do we do it better? Um, that actually, in itself, makes me feel better. Yeah. I wish people could see you gesticulating <laughs> yeah, in a circle, like, yeah. and they would get it. But yeah, uh, within that model, we are certainly at a failure point. Yeah, um, oh, for sure. And I think everybody... I think people, everybody feels that, right? Like yeah. if you're at the Thanksgiving table and you're like, you're talking to your like crazy uncle who was like at the Trump rally, like you're just like, like we're not even like dealing in the same information no. set. Like you seem like a bazillion miles apart, um, which, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. And there's a personal responsibility aspect to this too. I mean, I think I... I talk about this a lot on my podcast when I went through these few years of like figuring my life out where I started to ask myself why I made every single decision. Like, why do I eat this in the morning? Like, am I, do I wash my dishes at night or in the morning or after I wake up? Like, why am I going to hang out with this person? Why am I going to bed at this time? Like really being critical about the choices that I'm making and whether or not they're authentic or I'm just doing them because of something and I fully agree that none of us are ever going to be able to extract ourselves from like the psychological projecting and nurtured experience that we have. So instead, it's like if we could just sort of recognize that all forms of media or public presentation are biased or subjective in some way and just use it as a way to sort of construct our own like, OK, here's I would like read books that like called each other out just to exercise my own ability to form a fucking opinion for myself, you know, yeah. um, which is hard and risky. Right. And I I started this podcast cause I was like, shit, I've got these opinions. I feel like no one else is saying this stuff. And I guess I should probably say it. Like someone said, like, I'm, 
I don't have the balls to say what you're saying, but I really appreciate that you do. And I was like, okay, well, if I do have the balls, maybe a bad way of describing it, but like I should probably utilize that. And I think we should all do it more. I hope to like encourage more people to say the things or form opinions or live in a way that sits outside of any form of conventionality, even if they're a part of a community, like let's just like stop blindly following things. I have less, almost less of a problem of like the subjective nature of the media than I do with people that are unwilling to engage with it in a constructive way and like metabolize it in a critical fashion. Yeah, it sounds a little crazy, like I'm minimizing the whole thing, to say that media literacy is like one of the most fundamental things that we could improve as a society. But like, whatever, I work in the media, you know, it is it is my profession. And I'm a person who reads and consumes like I do actually think it's uh, it it may it's probably like what economists call necessary but not sufficient but it's definitely a key piece to the puzzle yeah all right we gotta like stop this before we go on for five hours but i feel like we should do this we're almost out of wine yeah Yeah. exactly okay but so i actually do have legit a couple of questions i'll give you quick okay semi non rambling answers (laughs) okay so one um tell people where they can find you and learn more about your all the cool shit you're doing and secondly i ask everyone if they could recommend one book Oh, to yeah. the listeners, what would it be? It could be about this conversation or just something that was really influential sure. in your life. Um, probably the easiest way. I'm on all the social channels, but I'm most, yeah. I'm predominantly on on the gram. So that's the easiest way to hit me up is on the gram. And then I think um, you can even uh, text me. I think I put my cell phone number <laughs> after. Did you do really? Yeah. After <laughs> uh, I'm part of this thing called community. Um, where you put your cell phone number oh, up and people can just text that's you. That's fucking sh- amazing. Yeah. So it, all of that stuff's on Instagram. It's yeah. at Kaj Larson. Cool. And, uh, you yeah, know, well, part of the thing was like in that article, like I said, I was going to be brief and I lied. <laughs> in that article, like one of the things was like, we tried to contact Mr. Larson, but he oh didn't respond to you. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm out there on Instagram with my shirt off every day. Like, people contact me all the time. Like, yeah. the employee who you talked to had my phone number. You could have called me, right? Yeah, so that's yeah. it. My phone number's there. If you want to write a disparaging article, like, please call me first so yeah. I can give you the actual information. Yeah. Uh, so anyways, at Kaj Larson, uh, Facebook, Instagram, all of that stuff. Um, and then book, I just, um, I just read, I am not going to pronounce his name, so I'm not even going to try, but I just read an amazing book called Winners Take All. Uh Have you read this? No, but I heard you talk about it on Kyle's Uh, podcast. (laughs) Oh, well, then I want to pick a different book. All right, well, I'll put both in. All right. Uh, (laughs) Winners Take All is my recommendation because it's just like, it'll kind of take your reality and like rip it apart in terms of all of the things that we think are good, like the philanthropic and all the do-goodery stuff that we try and do. His argument is that a lot of that reinforces the current system of, of inequality yeah. that we have. So, um, I read that. Um, yeah, that's it. That's fine. It's I'll double down I on, on winners take all. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much, Gus. You're this awesome. awesome. <laughs> Hello again. Thanks for sticking around and listening to that conversation. Hope that was as fun for you as it was for me. Um, I don't think I've ever like had a drink and recorded an episode so 
that was my first time doing a podcast drunk. Not drunk, but definitely affected. Um, anyway, it was a lot of fun. Kaj is such a great person uh, and fun to be around. Um, again, if you'd like to support the show, please head over to patreon.com slash Anya Kotz. I would really love to have you as a part of that tribe. Um, if you don't have any money to spare, I understand, um, but I would really appreciate it if you could go to the iTunes store, hit subscribe, leave some stars and a review. Even if it's like three words, it's still important and it still matters. And it's just as good as writing a paragraph, to be honest. No offense toward anyone that wants to write a paragraph, go for it, but a couple of words will suffice for sure. Um, what else? Uh, I, uh, taking a turn, a depressing turn, or maybe this, most of this conversation was depressing. I'm not sure. Um, so, uh, one of the bands that I feel like defined and wrote a soundtrack for my adolescence was Fountains of Wayne. Um, for those of you that don't know or don't know the band, the lead singer of Fountains of Wayne, who also wrote That Thing You Do, you know, that amazing song in that Tom Hanks movie. Um, and, I mean, a myriad of other things. He was a pretty brilliant, uh, prolific songwriter. Uh, but he had a band, Fountains of Wayne. And um, a lot of the song mentioned the area in which I grew up and talked about themes that I thought were fun and the style of music was what I was into when I was, you know, in my late teens. And Adam uh, Schlesinger, uh, the lead singer, uh, died a few days ago of coronavirus. Um, he was actually friends with a friend of mine. He was the biggest source of music inspiration for my ex-boyfriend, someone that I was with throughout my late teens. Um, so that uh, affected me a lot and affected those who I know. Definitely made this whole crisis a lot more tangible and real and close. Um, so I wanted to play you out with a song of his, a Fountains of Wayne song called All Kinds of Time. Um, it was really poignant to actually listen to this song now knowing what has happened um it's not about death uh or life necessarily but certainly symbolically it is and um all kinds of time we got all kinds of time right now and referring back to what i talked about in the intro let's fucking use that time because not all of us have a lot of time left People we love don't have a lot of time left. Let's use the time that other people don't have and just fucking use it authentically, please. Don't do what someone else thinks you should do. Don't crawl into a ball and complain because things are hard right now. It's all fucking perspective. Yes, grieve. Yes, cry. Yes, be fearful. But let's come back to the truth of the fact that we're alive and we have time. Everything else can be replaced. Time cannot. So let's use it. Love you all madly, deeply. Talk to you next week. The 
clock's running down The team's losing ground To the opposing defense The young quarterback Waits for the snap When suddenly it all starts to make sense He's got all kinds of time He's got all kinds of time All kinds of time He's got all kinds of time All kinds of time He takes a step back He's under attack But he knows that no Oh, uh-huh.